How we doing? Good. It is good to see you guys this morning. Sorry. Um, if you're new with us today, my name is Grant. I'm the pastor here of H2O. Um, this is not our normal spot, but like you were saying, we used to meet here. Um, so it's kind of nice sometimes to, to come back when the university kicks us out of our normal room. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it's our last Sunday before spring break. You guys ready for spring break? Yeah? Okay. I know I'm, I'm pumped to go to Florida. I'm going to be in Florida next Sunday. Be on the beach, taking in some sun, sharing Jesus with people. It's going to be a great time. And uh, I know some of you guys are going to be over in South Carolina. I'm sure that'll be fun, too. Some of you guys are staying in the great city of Cincinnati, and you're going to be serving. That's awesome. It's going to be a great time. And some of you guys are just made the wrong decision and, and chose not to go on one of our trips. But that's okay. I won't hold it against you. Um, no, but so if you've been with us, you know, most of this semester, uh, we have been preaching through the book of Judges. And uh, Judges is an Old Testament book. It's a, a book that a lot of us probably weren't too familiar with uh, when we started uh, this series. But what, what I've hoped that you've seen is that, man, even though these stories are stories that happened thousands of years ago uh, to people that lived all the way on the other side of the world in a very different culture, uh, they struggled with a lot of the same things that we struggle with today. A lot of the sins and weaknesses that they had are the same as the sins and weaknesses that we have today. And the God that they served then is the same as the God that we serve now. And we've been able to see so much about how God has interacted with his people and how he's, he's come in to rescue them from a lot of their failings. And uh, just to kind of recap some of what we've seen throughout this series, uh, I started off the first week where we talked about how uh, Israel had this difficulty with giving just full and complete obedience to God. Uh, God had promised to give them this good land and he told them, I, I want you to drive out all of the inhabitants there. Because if you don't, they're going to become a snare to you. They're going to turn your hearts away from me. They're going to drive you into idolatry, and they're going to cause lots of other problems. Well, Israel was unfaithful in doing what God had told them to do. They drove out some of the people, but not all of them. And we talked about how, man, sometimes that's so similar in our lives, where we kind of drive out some of the sin in our life. We kind of give some of our obedience to God, but we don't follow through all the way. And so then uh, the next week, uh, Matt Pardee uh, came, and he, he talked about uh, Israel and just how they failed to uh, do a good job of passing on the torch to the next generation. Uh, that there was a generation that knew uh, the mighty works of the Lord, but that too often they didn't do a good job of really communicating that. And so a new generation would, would, would grow up that didn't really know the Lord in the same way that the old one did. And we talked about the importance of us discipling, taking what you know, what you've learned about following Jesus, what your relationship is with him, and passing that on to other people, showing them what that looks like as well. Um, we talked about this cycle of sin. Daniel talked about this throughout the whole Old Testament, uh, where we have Israel that was consistently, although they were the people of God, falling short and falling into these cycles of sin. And we, we see the difficulty uh, that they had and the struggles that they went through because of that. And we saw that sometimes uh, people suffer for doing things that are wrong. Sometimes bad things just happen for who knows what reason. God works through them. But regardless, uh, we saw this cycle of unfaithfulness, uh, and we saw how God would continue, however, to be faithful to Israel, despite their unfaithfulness, and that he would deliver them from their troubles. And oftentimes in the book of Judges, what we saw in how God chose to deliver them was through raising up these people called judges, okay? Which is a weird term for us. When we think of judges, we think of old guys sitting with wigs behind a bench or something. That's not what this is. This is more like generals, military leaders. They would rise up and they would kick out these people that had enslaved the Israelites or oppressing them in different ways. And two of the guys we looked at specifically were, one was a guy named Gideon. And we saw how he struggled a lot with doubt and with fear. 
And man, like, couldn't we relate to that? Seeing man, it's, sometimes it's so hard for us to trust that God will actually be with us. And we're fearful to do what he's commanded us to. And then we looked at a guy named Samson. And we saw that this was a, a really broken guy, a guy that had major lust problems, major anger problems. And yet we saw that God still used him um, to begin delivering his people from the Philistines. And finally, last week, uh, we got an inside look at some of the sin that was going on in Israel. Because consistently throughout the book of Judges, we've seen uh, that Israel again did what was wrong in the sight of the Lord, and that something bad would happen to them, and they'd raise up a deliverer. But these last few chapters of Judges, we get an inside look at what was that sin that was going on in Israel. And last week, we were introduced to a guy named Micah and a false priest that he hired, and his mom, who, who helped him create these idols, and a whole tribe that came along stealing his idolatrous shrine and his priest. And, and we saw the chaos that was going on in Israel. And we saw that so much of it stemmed from people just seeking after their own interest and, and not really honoring God and willing to sell out, sell out what God had said is right just so that they could get what their worldly version of success was. And so that brings us today uh, to our last sermon in Judges. We're going to be looking at the last three chapters. And honestly, um, these are some of the most grisly chapters in all of scripture. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with it. It's a pretty shocking story. Um, but honestly, this was the sermon I was probably most excited about preaching uh, when I came up with the idea of even saying, hey, I want our church to preach through Judges. Uh, because what, what we see throughout the book of Judges is that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the, the author of Judges makes a specific point to actually end the book with that phrase. And it bookends the story that we're going to look at today. And we see that so many of the problems and the sin that Israel was falling into relate back to that. But I'll get to that later. I do think that our culture is very much in a similar situation, though, where we try to live with no king and where everybody just tries to do what's right in their own eyes. The idea of an objective morality, an absolute truth, a God who actually says what is objectively right and what is objectively wrong is starting to pass away from our culture. And we look and just say, ah, well, what's right for you is right for you, and what's good for me is good for me, and we'll all just kind of get along happily. And, and there's a lot of flaws in that way of thinking that I'll get to later in our sermon. But this is a heavy passage we're going to get into this morning. I just want to warn you. So it, it might be a little depressing for a while. It's okay. Uh, stick with me. There's, you're probably going to feel some weight of your sin. You're going to feel the weight of the sin of the people of Israel. Um, but but I, I would ask that you don't disengage um, as we go through that, that you would really let the Lord speak to you uh, through this passage this morning, and then we're going to bring it back to, man, okay, how does this relate to us today? And what has God done about the problems that we see? So if you would pray with me before we get into the text. Um, God, we love you so much. And uh, we just thank you for being a great, awesome, mighty God. Lord, we want to be people that are faithful to you. God, we, th we see how uh, you called Israel to be your own people, that, that they would be your people and you would be their God. Yet, Lord, we see their unfaithfulness. And just the same with us, God, we see that you have called us to be your children. We see in John 1 that as many as believed give the right to become children of God. God, you have called us to be your people as well. But Lord... Just like Israel, we struggle with unfaithfulness. Lord, I ask that you'd speak to us this morning. God, I pray that you would convict us. I pray that you would encourage us. I pray that you would turn our eyes towards you. God, that we would learn to do what is right in your eyes and not what is right in our own. We love you. We thank you so much for who you are. And we ask this in your son's mighty and awesome name. Amen. 
Okay, um, so as I said, we're going to be covering the last three chapters of Judges. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can go to Judges chapter 19. It's a lot of material, so I'm going to have to do a lot of summarization. We'll be switching back from some uh, reading and from some summary. But I do want to make a very uh, important point before we get into this, which is just because something is in the Bible does not necessarily mean God is endorsing it, okay? I, I think that that kind of goes without saying, but sometimes skeptics will say, oh man, look at all this garbage that's in the Bible, and this is God's people that are doing this, and look, he supports all this kind of stuff. No, okay? Just because something is in it does not mean God is supporting it. As a matter of fact, we consistently see God rebuking Israel and punishing them for some of the kind of things that you're going to see, like what happened in the story we're going to look at today. All right, so let's go. Judges 19, verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, and his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and there was there for four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. Okay, uh, so here at the beginning of our story, we are introduced to another wandering Levite. Last week, we met a wandering Levite. We meet another wandering Levite this week. If you don't know what a Levite is, it's just a guy from a certain tribe in Israel. It was a priestly tribe in Israel. That's all you need to know about that term. Uh, for our story this morning. But anyway, uh, you also see a term there you might not be familiar with called concubine. Uh, concubine, uh, we don't really have these in our culture, uh, but this was actually a woman that was essentially like a kind of a live-in sex slave slash secondary wife. She was kind of like a wife, but she wasn't fully a wife. She actually had slave status, um, but you know, at the same time, she kind of performed some of the same duties as a wife. Oftentimes, uh, men would, would use a concubine to raise up a child or for their sexual pleasure, something like that. Um, but anyway, that was what, what we have going on here. That's the relationship that we have between the Levite and this concubine. So as you can imagine, she seems unhappy with her relationship. We don't know exactly why. Uh, but she goes off, and uh, she's actually unfaithful to him, and then runs off to live at her dad's house. And she's there for four months. And uh, the Levite's eventually like, you know what? I want to get my concubine back. So he goes, and the dad's glad to see him. Uh, now, we don't know exactly why the dad's glad to see him. doesn't tell us. Most likely, it's because uh, his daughter's unfaithfulness would have brought a lot of shame to this family. So the prospect of reconciliation would have been a very good thing for the dad to be thinking about. And so he comes. He stays for a few days um, with the father-in-law. Talks about how they stayed there for three days. And then so he gets up on the fourth day, and uh, the Levite's ready to leave with his concubine. And he's like, no, I, I want you to stay, eat, drink another day. So he gets him to stay for a fourth day. The fifth day, the Levite gets up again early in the morning. He's like, all right, it's time to go. And he's like, no, you got to stay. So he, they make a meal. They share a meal together. And he's like, oh, the day's almost over. You should stay the night. But he's like, no, I, I got to get out of here. It's, time, it's just like when you're in-laws, you've had enough of them. I got to go, okay? Uh, so he, at this time, it's getting late in the day, and the, the journey was too long back home for them to be able to make it in daylight. So he knew that he was going to have to stay the night uh, somewhere else, but he just needed to get out of there. Um, so let's, let's pick our story up in verse 10. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. 
When they were near Jebus, and the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into a city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gebeah. And he said to the young man, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gebeah or, or at Ramah. So they passed and went on their way. And the sun went down on them near Gebeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gebeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took him into his house to spend the night. Okay, uh, so they passed by Jerusalem. At this time, Jerusalem, you, obviously that's a city you're familiar with. It would later become the capital of Israel. Uh, but at this time, it's actually still under control of a different people group, the Jebusites. And so they come by Jerusalem. They're like, no, this is not a safe place to stay. We don't really trust these foreigners. Uh, let us move on a little bit further to a place where it's our own kin and Israel. So they go on and they get into the, the land of Benjamin. Uh, Israel was divided. There were 12 tribes of Israel. And so the land was divided amongst these 12 different tribes. So they're passing through the area where the people of Benjamin lived. And they find this city called Gebeah. They're like, yeah, this will be a good place for us to stay. Obviously expecting some sort of hospitality that they would receive uh, from their fellow Israelites. Um, however, when they get there, we see that uh, nobody was willing to take them into their house. Uh, which is a little bit strange. You, th there weren't really like hotels and stuff in this time, so it was more common in the culture that if there's a traveler coming along, someone in the town would be willing to host them into their own home. Well, they didn't find that kind of hospitality, so they decided, okay, well, we're just going to set up camp in the open square of the city. It's still safer than traveling out uh, in the dark on the roads at night. So uh, they do this, and uh, they're sitting there in the town square, and there's an old man that comes along. Old man comes in working from his field. He's not a Benjamite. Uh, he's actually a guy from the uh, tribe of Ephraim. And he sees them sleeping in the square. He's like, you guys can't, you can't do this. This is not right for you to be sleeping in the square. And he invites them to come in and stay at his house. And so uh, at this point, you think, oh, good, good. They've received the hospitality that you'd expect. Things are going to be okay. I was kind of worried about them sleeping in the square before. But now this kind old man took them in and all will be well. All right. And they're having a good time. We'll pick it up here in verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Okay, they're not talking about speaking there. Um, and the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And okay, so despite the hospitality of this old man, the traveling party still ran into a danger that they couldn't have possibly expected. And this term, when it talks about knowing somebody in the Bible, like I said, that's not, that's not talking about having a chat. Okay, they literally wanted to come and rape this man that had come, in, that had come to their town. And that puts them in a dilemma, right? Like, this is uh, obviously a scary situation, 
And so what do the men do? They, they, rather than acting with courage and doing something to try and defend the women, they actually say, you know what? Uh, here, let, the old man offers his own daughter, his own virgin daughter, to go out and be raped by these men, gang-raped by these men. And uh, they, they don't want that, though. They want the new guy that came. So he decided, the, the guy, in order to save himself, knowing that they're co- going to come for him, literally t- grabs his concubine and throws her out to them like throwing a piece of meat out to a bunch of hungry wolves that are chasing after you. This is the woman, by the way, that he had just spoken kindly to at her father's house just a few days earlier to get her to come back to him. Now he was treating her like a piece of meat to protect him from hungry wolves. Pick up our story. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, Behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. And he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away from his home. So not only did this Levite throw his concubine out there to be ravished and gang raped the entire night, he also uh, went to bed. He was sleeping as this was happening right outside his house. How, how, do, how do you do this? How do you just rise up in the morning and say, all right, get up, it's time to go? How does he treat her there? There's no, there, there's no concern for her well-being whatsoever. It's, let's get up, we've got to be on our way. It turns out there was no answer because she actually died from that night. She was abused so uh, terribly and treated so awfully that it literally killed her. I don't know if it gets any worse than this. Most of you probably didn't know that this story was in the Bible. As I said, this is one of the most grisly stories that you will find in all of Scripture. And if the story sounds familiar to you, uh, it might be because there was a very similar instance that happened back in Genesis. The famous city of Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, the cities that are literally synonymous with sin and wickedness. There was a very similar thing that happened. Uh, where basically uh, there were some angels that came to the town and the people of Sodom wanted to, to rape the angels. And uh, Lot ended up doing, offering the same kind of thing, but the angels blinded the, the people of the town and escaped. And then God literally destroyed that city with fire and brimstone. Okay? Uh, now, here's the crazy thing. That was happening in Sodom. Okay, like of all the cities in history, that is what people think of as being like the most sinful and wicked city that has ever existed. This happened in Gebeah, Gebeah of Israel. These were God's people. These were, these were people that, that God had brought out of slavery in Egypt. He had brought them through the desert. He had brought them into a promised land, a land that the scriptures call flowing with milk and honey. He had given them his law. He had taught them what was right. All these kind of things. Of all places, Israel would be the last place that you would expect the behavior of Sodom to be occurring. But here we are. And while the angels escaped and struck the men of Sodom with blindness, the men of Gebeah went through with their act that they wanted to do. So the Levite naturally is incensed at what happened. Maybe feeling guilty too, I don't know. We don't get to see his emotions. But we do get to see his reaction. See this starting in verse 29. He goes back home and says, When he entered his house, he took a knife 
And taking hold of his concubine, he divided her, limb by limb, into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. The Levite seems to have pretty much lost his mind at this point. Uh, He takes his dead concubine home, cuts her up into 12 pieces, and sends these body parts out to all the different tribes of Israel as a message to say, look at what happened. Look at this this terrible evil that has been committed in Gebeah. As you're listening to this story right now, like, don't you want justice? Like, Like, don't you want the men of Gebeah to pay for the sins that they committed here? Heck, you probably want the Levite to pay for the sins he committed too. But as, as, the, as the people of Israel get this, they're, li- they're shocked, as you would imagine. Right? What would you do if an arm showed up on your doorstep saying, look at what happened? And so, this, so what happens is Israel decides we need to respond. So they gather up a huge army. 400,000 Israelites gather together. And they, they come together to try and execute justice to rectify what went wrong. And so they go to the, t- to the uh, towns of Benjamin, and they start asking for Benjamin to turn over the people that did this thing. We see this in Judges 20, uh, 12 through 13. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gebeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. So for some reason, the people of Benjamin would not listen to Israel. Even though they, these men were guilty, they were guilty as sin. They decided, ah, no, we're, we're not going to offer them up. And, and this is perplexing, isn't it? Why would they not want these rapist murderers to face justice? It's intriguing to us, but, but too often I feel like, honestly, we do the same kind of thing in our society. We automatically side with our people, regardless of what the facts are. We aren't even willing to investigate the facts. This, I, I was struck by this with all the racial tension we've been having in our country, especially, what was it, a couple summers ago. Um, with, with there, it seemed like every other day there was a news story about a police shooting a black man. And, and what, what I was grieved about seeing was, was not just that these things were happening, but the way that everybody was reacting to them. You know, some people were willing to hold their tongue and try and figure out, okay, what is it that actually happened in this situation? Uh, but, but too much of what I saw was, I'm white, I'm going to side with the white people. I'm black, I'm going to side with the black people. And, and there, there was no consideration of what is actually right or wrong. It's just, I'm going to side with my people. And this is what the tribe of Benjamin is doing here. They're literally, they're protecting rapist murderers. Now, who knows, maybe they knew they were guilty, maybe they didn't. But they weren't even willing to listen to the facts of what happened. They said, no, we're not going to offer them up. We're going to protect our own. Man, I mean, I see the same thing in the United States of America. It doesn't seem like we've come too far with, with our racial tension. But anyway, um, not only did Benjamin not listen to what the tribes were saying, not only did they not turn over these men, they actually decided that they would raise up their own army. To, uh, against Israel, one tribe against the other 11 tribes, they mustered together 26,700 men to get ready for war. 
And a civil war would literally break out in Israel because of this occurrence. This was the straw that broke the camel's back in in literally uh, starting to tear apart God's holy people. They hadn't made it that long. A few hundred years they'd been in the promised land now. And they're literally starting to go to war with each other before they'd even taken out the people they were supposed to in the first place. Jerusalem was still under the control of foreigners. And here we have Benjamin going to war with the rest of Israel. One tribe against 11, 26,700 against 400,000. As you can imagine, the side with 400,000 won. Um, It actually took them a while. Benjamin won the first two battles, uh, but eventually Israel put together a plan with an ambush that completely and entirely routed Benjamin. I'm talking not just a military victory. They killed every single guy that was out there short of 600 men of Benjamin. Not only did they kill all of these warriors, they went through the towns of Benjamin and slaughtered the people living there, even down to the livestock. They essentially obliterated one of the tribes of Israel entirely, down to 600 men that were left. Eventually, a few months later, they start to realize the mistake that they'd made, <laughs> that they had, they had executed unchecked vengeance against a fellow tribe of theirs. And they start to mourn. God, we've lost one of our brothers. We've lost a tribe of Israel. So they decide, we've got to do something to fix this. We need some sort of a repopulation plan for Benjamin. The only other problem is not only did they kill everybody but 600 of their men, they also vowed that they wouldn't give any of their daughters to a man of Benjamin. So they couldn't, they, they, there were no wives available in Israel for any of the men of Benjamin. And so they hatched this repopulation plan where they found this one town that didn't go out and fight. And they're like, oh, well, well they were wrong for not going out and fighting. So they go there, kill all the men of that town, and take the women, which were, there were 400 of them, and give those to Benjamin. Okay, well, there's still 200 men of Benjamin that don't have wives. So they hatched this other plan where they're like, oh, well, um, we said we wouldn't give our daughters an oath, but instead we'll just set up this plan for them to be kidnapped so we don't actually give them an oath, but the men of Benjamin still end up with them. No joke, I'm not kidding about this. They, uh, th- there was a festival they knew was about to be going on in Shiloh where the women would go out and dance in the fields, and they're like, oh, we'll just make sure that Benjamin's ready to go kidnap these women when they go out there. And that was their repopulation plan. And the tribe of Benjamin did end up surviving although it would be small uh, for, the, for the rest of the time that existed. I guess still exists today. Um, this is how the book of Judges ends, with a colossal mess. I mean, I don't know if things can get much worse than what we've seen just take place in this story, from the, hor- the horrific account of what happened on a small level, with the Levite and his concubine, all the way down to wide-scale civil war with, with, with incredible vengeance that basically it was almost genocide. I mean, they literally almost wiped out the tribe of Benjamin. And this is how the book of Judges ends. The very last verse, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, in, ver- in chapter 19, verse 1, it said, In those days when there's no king in Israel... Here we bring our eyes back to that as well. And, and the problem is not that there was no human king. Okay? Israel would later get human kings, and there were a few of them that were good, but most of them didn't do a very good job either. And there were the same kinds of evil that would happen. The problem was that there was no king in Israel in the sense that the people had not made God their king. 
God had called them to be his people. You will be my people. I will be your God. He had given them their law. They knew what they were supposed to do, but they chose not to. They didn't live with God as king. Instead, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And when everyone does what's right in their own eyes, these are the kind of results that you get. And you know, uh, so many people want to remove God from our lives, and they think that everything will go well without him. This is what Israel did. Who needs that old law? Who needs God anyway? We can figure out how to, to navigate this world on our own. We're good people, right? And so these are the kind of things that we see that happened. Just four major things to draw from the story. First, uh, we saw that in the eyes of Israel, it was right to treat women as property. The way that women are treated throughout this story is absolutely abhorrent. At the beginning of the story, uh, when the Levite went to get his concubine back, the interaction about, about taking her back, she actually had nothing to do with it. It was all between her and her dad. I mean, sorry, between him and her dad. Um, <clears throat> the old man. I mean, shoot, he, he kind of seems like a good guy in the story for a while, right? Like, he takes in these guys sleeping in the square, and, and all of a sudden, the next thing you know is, rather th than doing anything to try and defend uh, the, the people of his house, he literally offers up his own virgin daughter to be gang-raped. And the Levite, he, he threw her out there to him to protect himself. The tribe of Benjamin, their repopulation plan revolved around kidnapping women to be their wives. Apparently that's what was right in their eyes. It was right for men to be selfish cowards. It's disgraceful how the men used the women to protect themselves and slept while they were outside being abused. It was right for them to be ruled by lust and sensuality. This drove the men of Gebeah to commit the unspeakable crimes that they did because they couldn't control their lustful passions. Also, even back to the beginning of the story, I mean, the concubine is the, the character that we feel the, the most empathy for, but even here, remember, she was unfaithful to the Levite at the beginning of the story. We don't know the surroundings of that, but regardless, we know that was wrong. seems like she was ruled by that to some degree as well. We see that in the eyes of Israel, it was right to use violence to get what you want. Unnecessary violence was spread during the Civil War. I mean, there's, there's winning a war, and then there's what, what Israel did to Benjamin. People were murdered and kidnapped to get wives for the men of Benjamin. They slaughtered the men of a town. They kidnapped other women, all this kind of stuff. These are the kind of things that were right in the eyes of Israel. Because there was no king. They didn't live with God as their king. And you might say, yeah, you know, well, they did all that kind of stuff. But, like, we, we've come so much further as a society now. Like, now... We don't really need God. And I would say, oh, really? Are we actually any different today? It's so easy for us to look at these kind of things and, and see the distance between us. We would never let stuff like that happen. I wouldn't do that, right? Why would challenge that? Do we really view women the way we should today? Value them the way that we should? Why is rape and sexual assault such an amazingly huge problem? Why is it, what is it, one in four women over their time in college are sexually assaulted? This is on our enlightened college campuses that this is happening. And in other parts of the world, I mean, it, it, it can be even worse. Pornography is an absolute epidemic. 
Okay, I'm so glad Charlie came to speak this morning. I, I, I've been in the same place where he is. And I know probably most of the men in this room have had some sort of experience with that. Maybe quite a few of you women have too. I don't know. The average age that uh, a boy gets introduced to pornography now is at age 11. It's probably only continue to drop with how pervasive the internet is. And, uh, you know, the reality is so much of pornography is actually watching the kind of things that took place in this. Things like gang rape, women being abused, not too different from what happened in the story. Even some of the softer things uh, still just view women as objects for sexual pleasure. Not really any humanity that's seen. No consideration of the destructiveness of the life that they're in. Anyone in the porn industry for that matter. I read 12% of all internet sites are pornographic in nature. 12% of all of the internet sites. It's crazy to me. There was a statistic I saw. It was 68% of men uh, ages 18 to 29 view pornography on a weekly basis. I think that's way too low. And in my experience, I think the numbers are probably much, much higher than that. Uh, but that's how many people were willing to admit it. And, you know, not only do we view uh, women as property, but uh, we don't even treat unborn babies with any dignity, respect, or humanity at all. We simply don't see them as humans. The World Health Organization estimates that there are 40 to 50 million abortions that happen worldwide each year. 40 to 50 million abortions. There are about 1 million of those abortions that happen in the United States each year. Roughly 22% of all pregnancies in the United States end in abortion. Over one-fifth of every pregnancy in the United States ends in abortion. How can we say that we're moral people? Seriously, are we any different from the people and judges? Because, I mean, everything that I'm seeing here looks like we value life on the same level that they did. We still act like selfish cowards. How often are we willing to throw other people out to take hits for us that we don't want to have to experience ourselves? How often are we unwilling to come to the aid of those that actually need help? There was a famous story that happened in New York City in 1964. A woman named Kitty Genovese who was raped and stabbed to death outside of her apartment building in New York City. Uh, she cried for help. The rapist actually stopped for a, bit, a little bit thinking that somebody was going to come out and help. And when he saw that nobody responded, he went and, and continued his crime until she died. It's pretty well documented. You can look it up. Um, we're still ruled by our lust and our sensuality. Why do so many spouses cheat on each other? Why is adultery such a massive problem in our country? I've already mentioned the pornography epidemic that we have. Uh, very few people wait uh, for sex in, until marriage at this point. Uh, drug and alcohol abuse is rampant. Uh, we have a heroin epidemic that is destroying much of the tri-state area right now. You guys see the, the alcohol abuse constantly around you. We even have an obesity problem. We don't even know how to control our own appetite for food. And we still use violence to get what we want. Look at all the wars that are going on around the world right now. It seems like we still have found that, that uh, the, the best way to get what we want is to take it by force. And you know what? Without God, who's to say that any of this stuff is wrong? You know, many in our culture, especially here on the college campus, have lost their grip on reality when it comes to religious, philosophical, and spiritual beliefs. 
There's the idea that all truth is relative. That morality uh, is something that's fluid. That there is no God, that he doesn't establish what's right and wrong. But my question to you is, how do we know that the things we read this morning, how do we know that the things I just talked about are wrong? We just, we just know that it is, don't we? And, and I'm sorry, but, but uh, evolutionary reasons trying to explain that do not hold water. Um, because from a survival standpoint, there are a lot of people that it would make sense to kill off, yet we know that that's wrong. God has implanted his law in our hearts. We were made in his image. He's the author of what morality is. And there is absolute truth. The idea that there is no absolute truth is a self-defeating statement. If I told you there is no absolute truth, I'm making a statement of absolute truth that there is no absolute truth. It's, it's absurd, but we allow ourselves to, to fall into these logical inconsistencies. You know why? Because we want to live as our own king. We don't want to submit to the actual truth. We don't want to submit to God as our king. We want to do what's right in our own eyes. Because it's painful to have to move from doing what's right in your own eyes to doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord. So we would rather be the ones that establish what morality is. But you know what? Just because you believe that something is true doesn't make it true. There is something that's true, and if there's, a, if there's contradictory claims to it, those claims are false. You can't just make up alternative facts. Okay? So I, I look at these kind of things, and I'm like, man, as I told you, this is going to be kind of depressing. You, you realize, man, we share in the sins of what we saw this morning. We are not a, a people whose hands are clean, at least by our own actions. There is a way your hands can be clean, and we'll talk about that in a second, but, but there is, we are not a people whose hands are clean. You cannot stand before God and say that you're a good person and that you are not contributing to the sins of the world. And you may not do some of the things that I was talking about, but you know that your heart has a lot of the same evil in it, even if you haven't acted out on some of these same areas. You know what? A lot of time when people see the brokenness of our world and all this messed up stuff that I've been talking about, they get mad at God. Say, well, man, if God's all-powerful and if he's good, why would he let all this stuff happen? And, and I have to step back and say, wait a second. Why are you mad at God? He's the one that told us not to do all this stuff. If we lived according to the way that God has told us, all this pain, all this suffering, all this garbage, this, these things, they wouldn't be happening. God is the one that has told us what is right. He's the only innocent party in this whole thing. You and me and everyone else are the ones that are committing the, these acts. We're the ones that are contributing to the brokenness of this world, yet somehow we step back and want to blame God. I'm sorry, but that just doesn't make sense. Think about this. What would the world look like if we actually lived with God as king? What if we stopped doing what was right in our own eyes? And we did what was right in the eyes of the one true king. We'll look back at the, the points I, I made earlier and see how it would change those things. You see, when God is king, women and all people, for that matter, would no longer be treated as property. We would understand that all people are created in the image of God. And they have great value, right? Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We would no longer be fearful, selfish cowards, but we would be people of courage. 
You know that Revelation 21 actually lists the cowardly as, as part of the group that will be cast into the lake of fire at the end of time? Revelation is 21, 7 or 8. Um, but God values courage. See, he gives us strength to be people of courage. Look at what God said to Joshua. Chapter 1, he said, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You see, Christian, if you're a Christian, you, you've been given the Holy Spirit. The Lord is with you. It doesn't mean you're going to be successful in the world's eyes and everything that you do, but what it does allow you is to be a man or a woman of courage. You don't have to be subject to the same fear that the rest of the world is. You know what? Because if you don't have Jesus, if you don't know that you have eternal security in heaven with the Lord, then this world is all you've got. And you've got to fight and scratch and sacrifice other people and anything you can to continue to be successful and to survive in this world. If your treasure's in heaven, Jesus is making a home for you there, that allows you to be courageous. You know that when you lose this world, you're not losing everything. If God is king, we would not be ruled by our lust and our sensuality but rather we would display the fruit of a holy life. This is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not God, not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God wants us to live in holiness and in purity. And if we live in doing what God says is right with him as king, we would live that way. We would not use violence to get what we want, but instead we would love others and treat them the way that we want to be treated. You've all heard this before, the golden rule. Matthew said in, or sorry, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Man, like that's, that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a, it's, a much better one, it's a much better picture when God is king than when you're king. It's much better when we live as people who do what's right in the eyes of the Lord than when we're people that live doing what's right in our own eyes. You know, I think most of us in this room recognize this. You probably didn't necessarily need me to stand up here for a half hour and tell you that. But the reality is, I think for a lot of us, we know that God's way is better, but we have such a hard time actually following it. We find ourselves failing despite the fact that we don't want to. We find that we have brokenness. And when we look at the pain and the suffering of the world, we, we feel unable to help.